Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 178th episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Moms, you definitely are going to want to listen to this podcast. My two guests today have done a deep dive in helping us understand the complexities of the digital world on our teens. Harvard University Project Zero researchers, Common Sense Media collaborators, and real-life parents, Emily Weinstein and Carrie James, are the authors of Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. In their book, James and Weinstein combine their years of research on technology use by adolescents, including data gathered during the first year of the COVID pandemic, to explore how teens use their phones, messaging apps, social media, and more to navigate their real-world relationships in new and surprising ways. The authors also have the benefit of the expertise of teens themselves. By working with dozens of middle and high school students across the United States, part of the author's Teen Advisory Council, Weinstein and James explain in adolescents' own words why they do what they do online and what tweens and teens wish their parents understood about the connected world they're living in. Emily Weinstein is a research director at Project Zero at Harvard and a lecturer at the Graduate School of Education. Carrie James is a sociologist and principal investigator at Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She is the author of Disconnected Youth, New Media, and the Ethics Gap. MIT Press. The author's work has been covered in Time, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic, and they are sought-after speakers on teens and technology. So welcome, Emily and Carrie. So great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so the first question I love to ask is, are you moms? And if so, what are the ages of your kids? We are, we're both moms. Um, between the two of us, we're currently parenting from two to just about 17. Um, I have a two-year-old and another one on the way. And Carrie? Uh, I have an almost 17-year-old and a 12-year-old. So a solid teen who just got her learner's permit and a tween. Perfect. Like I just told y'all, I read your book from Oakland, California, all the way back to Houston with one layover. And I loved it. And your new book that's coming out August 16th. Yep, that's right. Next Tuesday. All right. It's called Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. So good. So good. I think every mom needs to read this book, but it's, it's really, really good. So let me ask you, why did you write this book? Well, I'm a psychologist, Carrie's a sociologist. We've been working together for over a decade, chasing answers to questions about what it's like for teenagers to grow up with social media and smartphones, um, what's hard for them and why. And in our latest study, we had the opportunity to hear from more than 3,500 teenagers from across the U.S. about how they navigate the digital world and what's hard for them and what they feel like adults misunderstand. What we learned surprised us. And so we wrote this book to really break down what's myth, what's reality, and how to have better conversations with the teens in your life. And that, um, you know, a really powerful part of the work we did around this book is that we actually had teens working side by side with us every step of the way. And Emily and I have been researchers on teens and screens for a really long time, over a decade. But with this most recent study, we really felt the importance of bringing teens on our research team 
And we recruited a teen advisory council of 22 teens from different parts of the U.S. with different identities. And we had them work with us to make sense of what we were seeing in our survey data, really co-interpreting our findings and helping us identify the stories they most needed adults to hear. So that was just transformative, we feel like, in terms of what we were able to share about teens' perspectives, but it also transformed us as researchers. We won't go back to doing research the old way, where we collect some data and go off by ourselves and analyze it and make sense of it. We know that it's really important if we're going to be studying teens' experiences, they need to work with us to make sense of some of what we're seeing. Yeah, that is so obvious to me because... As y'all know, I'm a therapist, and it really resonated with all the stories that I hear in my office, and I think you did a really great job about that. So tell us a little bit more about the research you conducted to gather this information from these teenagers across U.S., we collaborated with 15 different middle and high schoolers, uh, sorry, 15 different middle and high schools across 10 US states, different regions of the country, traditional public schools, charter schools, a private school, and their students were really our research respondents to the first wave of survey data. So we had tons of answers to questions about the upsides and the challenges of technology. And then we recruited this teen advisory board with teens who had diverse identities and came from very different contexts. And we had 22 teens who over the course of several months met regularly with us, really digging into the data, checking our findings. And we focused every single meeting that we had with them on asking questions about what they felt like we were missing and what they felt like adults most needed to hear based on some of the trends we were seeing and frankly, things we weren't seeing in the survey data. You know, a really powerful facet of this is that we carried out these teen advisory councils during the pandemic, during like the height of the pandemic, during the lockdown period where a lot of teens were at home doing remote schooling. And we know that the not just the pull to the screen, but like the screens were essential to their learning, to their social connections at that time. And so they were really able to crystallize for us both the upsides of digital technologies and social media in their lives and some of the real pain points. So that was tremendously powerful. Mm, Yeah. What surprised you about what teens told you about their online lives? So much. It was amazing because Carrie and I, as I said, have been doing this research for over a decade and we've been really seeped in not only the stories that are out there in the research, but you know, doing interviews with hundreds of different teenagers, doing different studies, experiments, and surveys. And yet still, we just found that there's been this sea change over the last few years, and we had so much to learn. So maybe we'll just start with one example. Um, yeah. Many of us are alert to the adolescent mental health crisis in our country right now. And Carrie and I were really interested in that. And we were interested in the question that everyone has about how social media weighs on mental health and impacts adolescents' well-being. Something that we had not realized before we started doing this particular study is what feels like a hidden burden of the mental health crisis. And that is the reality that Even if you are not a teen who is yourself struggling, you are actually more likely than ever to have friends and peers who are. And social media has made it so that those friends are struggling in public. And you are constantly on the receiving end of sometimes very clear and sometimes very ambiguous cries for help. Um, We tell the story in the book about 15-year-old Allie who saw her classmate Jalen's Snapchat posts go from usual everyday posts to signs of mental distress and even hints at suicidal thinking. But Allie was really struggling to make sense of what she was seeing. She didn't know if these were real cries for help. Sometimes teens are like, is this just a music lyric that someone's sharing or are they actually, are they really in distress? And Allie really shifted from feeling a little concerned to all of a sudden very panicked as she watched the the messages on Snapchat escalate over a really short period of time. Um, And she was grappling with this question that so many teens told us they grapple with, which is what should you do and who should you tell if a peer's social media posts become alarming? Mm, Yeah, that's a real issue. 
Yeah, I mean, adults often wring their hands over the reality, like feeling that um, technology and connection to devices is eroding empathy, that we're no longer fully connected with others without failing to see that in some cases it's empathy for others, empathy for a struggling friend that's really a strong pull to the phone. So when we say, can't you just get off your phone? Sometimes we don't realize it's, be, you know, they want to be nearby because a friend may reach out who's really having a difficult time. Yeah, in my experience, that usually is about three in the morning. I mean, it's very late on a school night. Absolutely. It can be around the clock. And so this sort of, you know, being a good friend in an always on world is something that's really challenging and, and a reality that as adults, we need to tune into. And we may feel it ourselves in our lives. You know, we have our own devices. We have um, family members and friends who can reach out anytime. As adults, we, you know, may be better at setting boundaries around that, may be better mm -hmm. at, you know, communicating those boundaries. And so that's, that's something we need to tune into. Where do our teens need help? in terms of setting those boundaries that allow them to disconnect for their own well-being while also not feeling like they're leaving someone um, in distress on their own. There's, there's a quote that really stood out to us from a teen who said, um, I don't want my friends to harm themselves or worse because I didn't respond in time. And yeah. we just kept coming back to that idea. Like what does, what a big burden on young shoulders to feel mm -hmm. like your friends are potentially going to harm themselves because you did not respond to a text message at three in the morning or whenever it is. And this is just, this is actually so hard in part because values that we care about get pitted against each other. So there's this tension between like, I care about my own sleep and my well-being, and I want to disconnect. And also it's really important to me to be a good friend and I have empathy and, you know, that's, and both of those things are really important. And I think that in a lot of cases we saw how adults really simplistic messages just don't acknowledge that actually some of this stuff is super hard and it's hard at any age, but then mm -hmm. even more so when you add in the developmental complexities of adolescence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why I think your book is so good because you really dive deep into some of those inner struggles that teenagers have when they're online. All right. So Carrie, did you have any surprises? Oh, I mean, you know, the one that Emily shared is huge. But the other thing that we uh, give voice to in one of our chapters in our book in our book is is really about how conflict and drama play out in ways that are unexpected. Now, many adults are very alert to and familiar with the term cyberbullying and and active bullying, which is, you know, explicit aggression that's repeated and there are all kinds of school-based programs that focus on on cyberbullying and try to address and stem it. Um, but there are so many ways we heard from teens that conflict and um, conflict and aggression between them and their peers play out that are far more subtle. And if we don't slow down and listen to teens, we really miss a lot of these things. So the fact that um, that you know this is a feature of cyberbullying, but the fact that mean messages can be sent and received around the clock, they can be hard to escape. Uh, the fact that posts and accounts can be tied to specific locations and schools. And the fact that like even very subtle jabs can play out so publicly in front of an audience of peers. To really lean into the kind of subtle side of this, teens tell us about really ambiguous posts and comments and patterns of liking that can get under their skin. And they they may not look to adult eyes like anything is going on there, or we may roll our eyes and think like, what, what's the big deal? But there's, you know, there's an insidious reality here. So for example, a picture from a party is posted, but one girl gets strategically cropped out. Mm -hmm. Is that intentional? Yeah. You know, maybe it was an unflattering angle and the poster, the person who posted the picture was sparing her embarrassment because it, you know, it, it didn't look good. Or maybe it was a slight. It can be really hard to know. 
Mm -hmm. Um, We also heard about, you know, about patterns of liking, you know, there can be a way in which going through someone's old social media posts and liking every single one can be actually sending a pretty aggressive, threatening message, like I'm watching you. So these are some of the things we heard when we asked teens to tell us what is, you know, what does conflict and drama look like? How does it unfold in your world in ways that adults really miss? Mm. That's so good. So why are tweens and teens on their phones so much? And why is it hard for them to tear themselves away? And why can't parents just tell their kids to stay off your phones and social media? Oh, many questions packaged into one and such an important <laughs> one. Um, for sure. I mean, we we when we think about tech habits, one of the things we really heard and saw in action is that we have this collision of these developmental drives to be a good friend, to care about what your peers think of you, to express yourself and get reactions to different parts of your identity that you're showing. So we have all of that developmental completely predates technology colliding with these new social media platforms that are offering all these things to teens in the palm of their hand around the clock. And we have these pernicious design features like, um, you know, endless scroll or infinite scroll where your newsfeed never ends or metrics that are quantifying social feedback that are really playing and in many cases preying on the developmental sensitivities that teens already have. And what that manifests as is, you know, stories we hear from teens like, I don't know why, but the app TikTok runs my life, or I just keep falling asleep with my phone in hand. Um, One of the biggest things that we really came to understand, though, as we were talking to teens about their tech habits, is that teens do not want to feel dysregulated or out of control of their tech habits. And adults often get stuck in this position where we are in this perpetual us versus them battle where it's adults versus teens over phones. And we saw that when we understand that actually teens want to have better habits too, they want to feel more in control. They're navigating these tensions, like wanting to be a good friend and wanting to not be rude and motives that they have. When we recognize that, we can actually we can actually lean into these conversations from an us and them approach where we actually recognize that we are ultimately on the same team and we are all trying to figure out how to live with these technologies that are really designed to hack and hold our attention in powerful ways. And that just completely changes the kinds of conversations we have and the kinds of um, the kinds of approaches, the way we shift from being a referee who's just constantly blowing the whistle when teens are over screen time or have a misstep to being more like a coach who's actually really focused on helping them navigate these hard plays and the things that they're up against and ultimately go out there and be their best self. We've actually done some uh, close work with our colleagues and collaborators at Common Sense Media, uh, building tools for just this purpose to really help empower teens around digital habits. And so much of uh, the kind of the design intention behind those tools is really inviting teens to take stock of what are the habits that that you really want to address. So much of the time, I think we come to our teens and say, um, here's the rule. You can't, you know, X hours of screen time per day is is the max that you're going to have. Or, you know, we, we set these rules without opening up a conversation about what are you worried about? What, you know, what gives you pause? These Some of these quotes that Emily gave voice to, like, I feel like the, t- the app TikTok runs my life. I get stuck in this rabbit hole. Listening to having them name their habits, challenges, their, their personal um, goals for themselves, and then working on developing um, experiments to try to address them and gain back more power, pull back from letting TikTok sort of run them to letting them choose when to use TikTok and really enjoy it. So we've built some tools. One is called the Digital Habits Checkup that really supports that kind of taking stock and designing a personal challenge and experiment, a time-limited one to try out something different. Um, and this really puts teens in the driver's seat of defining the new habits they want for themselves and trying new things out and seeing how they work. Yeah, that's great. All right. So I love chapter three, four, and five. And so I want to 
jump into chapter three, which is some of the friendship dilemmas that teens encounter online. I just kind of wrote down some things that y'all can riff on. So talk about publicness and quantifiability. Okay. Well, publicness is really relevant because there is this audience on social media. And one of the things that we heard from teens was that saving face online is very complicated and it raises a lot of burdens around what it means to be a good friend. Because one of the things that teens feel a strong need to do is to um, perform closeness with their close friends as part of their online identity and saying to others, see, I'm a normal person who has friends who care, care about and love me. And one of the ways this plays out is, um, for example, a teen who's going to post a picture immediately needs and perhaps even expects in many cases their friends to immediately flock to their new post and comment very effusively fire emojis and you're the most beautiful ever and um, you <laughs> you're the best, my best friend in the whole world. And um, the, the expectation is so real that we heard from teens that there's a story in the chapter about a teen, um, I think it's Michelle who describes uh, getting her friend posting something and she sees the post and within a minute, her friend, she sees her friend typing to her, like the little, you know, dot, dot, dot bubble. And her friend says to her, like, why didn't you, why didn't you comment on my post yet? Michelle had liked the post, but she's waiting. She was trying to think of something to say. And she says, I'm trying to think of something to say. And her friend is like, okay, but can you do it fast? Wow. And Michelle tells us now, because I've had a delay, I actually have to comment twice and I have to make it really good. And she described this feeling of how hard it is because she cares. She, Michelle, cares so much about authenticity she also understands that her friend really needs her to publicly give this kind of praise. And she gets put in this position where she feels like she has to be sort of over the top and phony and constantly commenting, even if it's not what she genuinely feels, even if she can't think of anything as just part of the expectation of being a good friend in a digital age. Wow. 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 All right. Talk about dilemmas of availability. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, so this, you know, this is a huge thing for teens. There are subtle features of our apps and even our text messages that play a role in this. So if you ever notice when you, you send a, you send a text message to a friend, you'll see that as, as it goes, it, it indicates delivered. If you're on an iPhone, as soon as that message is read, um, and this is just in text messages, it can also happen in Snapchat and Instagram and, and other apps, um, you see that, that there is a signal indicating that it's been read. Those are very powerful and meaningful features of teens' digital lives. The idea of being left, well, first of all, on delivered. So that suggests that maybe your friend saw a message that came through, but they didn't even open it. They haven't even read it. That can be a very, very powerful slight. Mm -hmm. And then, then being left on read. So you've sent a message and the person has clearly read it, but they haven't reciprocated. So it's kind of like being uh, kind of left high and dry or standing in the front of the middle school lunchroom. You've put something out there. You don't know where to sit. You don't know if you're going to be welcomed. Um, and it really leads to this kind of wondering, like, did I say something wrong? Have I, have I done something to make my friend upset? Is the friendship falling apart? Because the last time they texted me, I didn't respond right away. So these worries and stresses are really, really sitting in young minds as they're using um, text messaging and other apps. Yes. And response time. Response time really matters. That's just an, a kind of another side of what Carrie was talking about, because you know that people might be really anxiously waiting for your reply. And we heard teens describe things like the half swipe on Snapchat. So the half swipe is sort of a hacked by teen solution to this idea of um, having a message left on read. So the idea is if you um, if you sort of hold your finger on your screen and halfway swipe as though you're going to open a message, 
on Snapchat, you could actually see a preview of the message without the app capturing that you've opened it. And teens talked about how they might, one reason they might do this is because they are very sensitive that they need to respond quickly if they're trying to signal to someone like, I'm A, I, I want to be talking to you and I care about you and I'm giving you my attention, but also B, I can come up with something witty fast. Mm-hmm. And so doing a half swipe is a way to buy yourself a little bit more time so you can come up with what response you want without actually starting the clock on your on response time. We heard about things like that, but also even about things like teens, like setting a timer if they were maybe in early stages of flirting with someone else and they wanted to get response time just right. They might set a timer so that they could ensure that their response went out not too soon, but not too long from when they got the inbound. And oh my gosh, other teens who describe things like just the pettiness. We There's one great quote in the book from a teen who was like, if you respond to me after five minutes instead of one, like I'm going to respond to you after five minutes, like just to be petty because I'm not going to respond faster than you are. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is also true. And many of my sessions have been about with love interests or, you know, guys that they're not sure if they like you and all of that about, well, I'm not going to respond because he's going to think this. So much overthinking with this. Oh, yeah. I, one of the teens, I, this really struck us, use the language of second and third guessing of everything that she sends to friends. But, you know, you know, it's, it's even more, the stakes feel even higher with a crush, someone you're interested in and quote unquote talking to. Because that's the language teens use for when that, for that early stage of courtship, talking. Yes. All right. Curating the inner circle. Well, there are many different ways that teens are curating their friend groups with and through technology. Um, And it's really worth saying that this is not only happening with social media. So I think some parents have the sense, like, if I just keep my kids off social media, I'll spare them from all of the issues We tell stories in the book, like Lila's story about group chats, where she describes this dynamic of being, you know, in two different friend group chats. And then one group finds out she's also in the other group's chat and they create a spinoff chat without her. And this is all playing out just on text message with group chats. And we heard again and again from teens that being in or out of a particular group chat actually has major reverberations for offline social life, because if you're not in a group chat, you're missing out on inside jokes, logistics for plans, and a lot of just the regular kind of updates and banter. So that's one really important way it happens on social media, actually curating different lists like close friends lists or particular groups so that when you're sharing, you're sharing to a smaller audience. Um, This is actually a really, I think, Carrie and I think is in many ways a really adaptive reaction to the reality that um, on social media, before there were things like close friends lists, teens only had the choice of speaking to their whole audience or not posting. And we saw things like Finstas, right, where teens were creating these separate spinoff accounts because they really wanted to be able to use the affordances of technology without having to post to everyone in their network. All the more meaningful, by the way, because of the social norm that you will accept everyone who you know, right? Adults spend a lot of time telling teens, like, don't talk to strangers, but we spend way less time thinking about the burdens for teens of staying connected to everyone and anyone they have ever met. And so if your norm is that you have to accept every single person from school who wants to follow you or you're rude, then you end up with this network that's much bigger than you might want to speak to. And so you come up with different ways that you can curate your smaller circles so that it's more like talking to just the people who would be sitting at your lunch table instead of using a megaphone to shout something to the whole cafeteria. Yeah. yeah. And these are tremendously like savvy strategies, like tapping what the apps provide. However, there's no guarantee that this 
is like a protected bubble because if things change in your relationship with one or more members of your private story, things can go south really badly. So they may have been privy to a variety of things that you wanted to share just with the close inner circle. And then they screenshot something and share it out with a wider audience if there's conflict that emerges. So there's a way in which on the one hand, these curating the inner, inner circle is a practical necessity and it's incredibly savvy, but it's not full proof. And when, when conflict emerges, it can become really, you can be tremendously vulnerable. Yeah. I laughed when you talked about the extreme flattery, because that's so true. So can y'all talk about that? Yeah, no, I was going to say, absolutely. And, you know, one thing that we say in the book is that it's not just teens who engage in this. Right. If you're you're on social media, and we actually grabbed um, signature quotes from our networks, I'm in my 50s. But, you know, of course, I have relatives in their 60s and 70s. And the sort of flattery that unfolds is, you know, on all levels, it can be over the top. It can feel much more meaningful to teens, though, because like the developmentally where they're at, peer feedback is so important. And so that, you know, that story that Emily shared a little while ago about Michelle and the need to comment and make the comment really good to really perform that closeness, it feels higher stakes to adolescents. But, you know, we're all, we're all part of this performing closeness kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's it's worth acknowledging too. I appreciate that you laughed. I mean, when we look, I think at this kind of pattern of over the top flattery and commenting for people who are a different age or generation than us, it doesn't actually matter if you're going up or going down. It seems so funny and ridiculous. And I think Carrie and I had that reaction when we were sort of analyzing our own social media posts. <laughs> Carrie's had all these comments that I was cracking up, like best jawline ever. And like, you haven't <laughs> aged a day since high school, which is not, I'm in my thirties. That's not what's on my, you know, not what's on my feed, but I see a lot of like best weekend ever, like best, you know, you're the most amazing mom. And like, you're just a lot of like, a lot of that kind of commenting or like, so hot. And then then we looked at the, we looked at the teens and it's like 52 fire emojis to say like, you're the hottest person ever. Or, um, we, there was one that our, our team just was cracking up about that. A teen was like, you know, like if someone says, uh, step on me, I'm your cockroach. And we're like, what? What does that? What does that even mean? Yeah. Step on me, I'm your cockroach. And they're like, oh, you. And, and another teen is like, oh, you don't know what that means. It's like, you know, it's like saying, um, oh, like you're so above me, so above everyone. I'm like a cockroach <laughs> under your shoe compared to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we think about this, like, step on me, I'm your cockroach, is like such a powerful example of this need to just go more and more and more extreme in the flattery. Oh my gosh. All right. So let's go into chapter four, where you talked about small slights or big fights. So I have a lot of questions about this. So can you talk about the T accounts or T pages? Yeah, so absolutely. So T accounts really, you know, the 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 name of a T account really comes from the concept of spilling the tea. So T E A to be clear. Spilling the tea which means spilling gossip. And so T accounts are essentially anonymous accounts or accounts that are set up by individuals, usually tied to a particular location, in many cases, a school. So there may be the name of the high school, such and such high school. I think we talk about Mill High School drama. So that's one T account that we feature in that chapter. Um, And that becomes a space to collect and post anonymously gossip, about friends and peers. And so some of it is really, you know, a big part of how conflict unfolds, like really spreading the word about um, emerging romances or or trash talking someone or, um, but but there can also be real civic intentions behind some of these accounts. So they become spaces also to name peers that um, may be involved in, sexually assaulting classmates. They can be a space for calling out 
um, microaggressions and incidents of racism. And we saw in the summer of 2020, a variety of T accounts emerge around uh, high schools where current students and alums were posting experiences that they had had of racism at those schools. And those accounts became sites of accountability. People lost their jobs. People were um, called to, to task for things that they had done recently or far in the past. So they're an interesting development and one that that sort of runs the gamut from having really important civic purposes to uh, on the other end of the spectrum, just stoking drama and conflict between young people. Mm. And it is so complicated that all of that, the like complete malicious gossip gets completely conflated is like appearing in posts intermingled with these posts that have really different intentions and that teens are in many cases monitoring to see what are other people saying, but also to try and make sure that they're not named on the pages. Mm, yeah. The outcome is that your the T page gets a totally wrapped audience. So whether something is real or completely fabricated, it ends up being seen by many, many people in the community we just came away with a sense that this is such a hard reality and the kind of um, the way that anonymity on those pages is colliding with these pages that are set up to speak to a very specific community that actually exists offline becomes really complicated. Oh, yes. So a quote that really I thought was amazing you said, interestingly, it's the lack of eye contact and text based digital communication that seems particularly key to understanding toxic disinhibition. Can you talk about that? Yeah, disinhibition online has been something that um, researchers have been really interested in since the very early days of the, of the internet. The idea is that we all know that online, hiding behind a screen, people say things that they wouldn't say in person. And so for the last two decades, researchers have been trying to understand what is it about being behind a screen that empowers us to feel like we can see things we would never consider saying to another person's face. And it turns out that there are some studies now that indicate that it's actually the lack of eye contact, which removes many of the nonverbal cues. So you can see how your words are landing that actually really seems to fuel the negative side of online disinhibition. Mm. It's important to note too, we say toxic disinhibition because disinhibition isn't always a negative thing. Actually, the fact that sometimes you can feel more comfortable sharing is really important. If you're, for example, a kind of anxious kid who has trouble making friends, the fact that you feel a little less inhibited when you're gaming and chatting with someone can actually be super powerful for building a really positive relationship that might be hard for you to build offline. That anonymity can also be really powerful and helpful if teens are tapping online communities for support around particular mm -hmm. struggles, like, you know, mm -hmm. a struggle related to an eating disorder or um, some other health condition. So anonymity, you know, in and of itself isn't toxic. There are particular scenarios and circumstances under which it becomes toxic, but it can be powerfully positive. Mm -hmm. I wrote this down that y'all said is that I, I hadn't thought about from their perspective, which is super powerful, is teens who have secrets of any kind have a heightened vulnerability in a digital context where anything can be made instantly public at any time. And then I know y'all talked about airing people out, exposing them, outing them, being canceled. So can y'all riff on that? Oh yeah, I mean there there is so much in our chapter on on that topic. The reality that you know teens talk about, and many of us today talk about the concept of receipts. And so receipts are essentially screenshots, sc recordings, anything that creates a persistent artifact of something that's happened. And so those receipts become a way of calling someone out for bad behavior. So there could be a text exchange that has unfolded between a group of peers where someone has said something pretty offensive and maybe it was intended to be a joke, maybe not. Regardless, it, regardless of the intentions, the impact is there. And 
someone who's a participant in that group is poised to create a receipt or some sort of screenshot and then share it out with a larger audience, share it out with a larger audience on social media, or in some cases save, and in, in many cases, save that receipt for a future moment when it feels important to share that with a higher stakes audience member, like a gatekeeper to a college or a gatekeeper to a new school. And so this is a reality that teens live with understanding that even when they curate those inner circles of those group chats or those private stories and they share certain things, um, some meant to be joking, some of that can get wrenched out of context, saved and stored, and then brought back in the future and really be a part of canceling someone. Your content, so current, like, so yesterday, so yesterday I'm talking to a girl and this was her story is... And I'll tell you about it after I read this quote. Because many teens use private or semi-private stories to share with their closest friends, the act of revoking someone's viewing access can be a power move to convey anger or stir conflict. So my client said yesterday, like one of her friends, she said, what really hurt is when I found out that I was cut out of that, the semi-private stories. And she said, I didn't realize it for a while, but then when I realized that she had cut me out, that's what really, really hurt me. And so I know you're talking about some of the slights. This stuff is real. The feelings are so real and they're obviously not new. I mean, being left out is something that we can all remember worrying about our, the quality, you know, our friendships and whether they're okay. That's, that's a reality that predates these technologies, but there is so much new social information for teens to analyze and scrutinize and worry about trying to figure out, did someone remove me from their, um, from their close friend's story and then trying to make sense of what that means. Sometimes you don't even know if they removed you or sometimes you, you know that you got removed from one circle, but not another. And you're trying to figure out what that means. Um, we, we heard teens talking about things like how even just like a Venmo transaction where you see that one friend or a couple of friends sent money to another friend, like that seems so benign, but imagine being a teen and you see that one of your friends just charged all of your other friends for movie tickets. Yeah. And you realize yeah. instantly that you were not invited. Right. Again, y'all have so much good content. So we're not going to get really into this, but we're going to get a little bit into chapter five of nudes and why teens sexed when they know the risks. So what I really appreciated about this chapter is that you really distinguish between wanted, pressured, and shared without permission and the difference and why that matters. Can y'all talk about that? Adults often just use this one word sexting to talk about all of these behaviors that are actually really different. And when we talked to teens, we found that for them, there was such a difference between the idea of a nude that was shared consensually um, with one person. And in many cases, we just kept hearing these stories about older teens in particular, like sexting in the context of committed relationships and nothing bad happening. And it was interesting because Carrie and I just had not had this idea of sexting with no bad consequences as at all part of our radar. We were in our, in our heads, like every time a sext is sent before we did the study, we were like, I think our assumption was like, it's leaked, it's a disaster. But the problem is that in teens calculus about and their decision-making about sexting, they actually think of all these examples of their friends who sent nudes or someone, you know, or their, their own experience sending a nude and it doesn't get leaked. It's just, you know, it gets sent to someone and it builds intimacy and then you move on. Of course, the problem is we don't know what happens after that relationship, after that relationship dissolves or if things take a turn. But um, we realized that we really needed to be alert to the fact that this was part of the spectrum of what was on teens' radars. It was especially important to acknowledge that because there were so many pressures we heard around sexting too. And we really wanted to call attention to pressured sexting. And we found that especially with teens, when we sort of parsed out that there's a difference between this wanted sexting and sexting that felt very pressured, whether it was um, 
guys feeling pressured to ask for nudes because their friends were signaling to them that that is what cool guys are doing and you should be sort of collecting your own, I'm using the word trophies in quotes, but um, your own trophies of girls' nudes um, or girls feeling a lot of pressure from when requests especially came from people who they liked and cared about and maybe they tried to say no and the person didn't really accept that. Um, feeling just tremendous pressure and like they had no good choices. And Terry and I came away, especially we're moms of daughters, like with this deep sense that adults needed to be much more alert to how pressured teens were feeling in this culture of sexting. And so we start with the wanted, not because we want people to have this message that like teens are just wanting to sex and it's all fun. That's not it at all. It's that we felt so concerned about pressured and I'll let Carrie talk about the shared without permission category, but these other two categories were so deeply troubling to us that we started thinking a lot about what teens might need adults to recognize so that we could actually have much more productive conversations about the bad stuff, the hard stuff. Yeah, to, to really articulate the spectrum that Emily is talking about in, in our chapter on sexting, we name nine reasons why teens sext, even when they understand that it's risky. And so that becomes inclusive of the things like, you know, wanting to um, develop a relationship with someone. And that's like, that's the reality. You have a crush and you want someone, you like someone and you want them to like you. So really understanding that piece and then going all the way to those really pressured scenarios that Emily gave voice to. So just to underscore, you know, one, one thing that Emily just named is as adults, you know, when we think about, and, and this is hard, well, I'll just name like, you know, I have two daughters, um, you know, like the idea of having to talk about sexting and the stakes around it feel really high and it feels really hard. But we also know from listening to teens that the common message, just don't sext, and that's the beginning and the end of the conversation, isn't all that helpful, especially in a context where there is a tremendous amount of pressure and it feels like there are no good choices. So a couple of things that teens told us, they really wanted to hear more from adults. So for example, girls told us, tell parents of boys just to not ask for nudes. It puts them in such, it puts girls in such a hard position, especially if they like someone and they get, and girls have the sense that conversations like this were not necessarily happening for a lot of the boys they knew. Another thing, and this is especially important for younger teens or tweens, middle school age girls, is give them some guidance around how to say no. Um, and so, you know, like teens, Teens and tweens understand how to block someone on social media. So someone, if a stranger asks for a nude, they understand how to block that person. What they don't always know, especially tweens, how to do, how to handle is when someone they know who they can't really block and they don't want to close a relationship with has asked them for a nude. Um, and so really helping tweens in particular come up with language for responding to requests when they want to say no. Um, another key thing is the importance, and this is this is definitely in the category of very clear don'ts. Do not ever, ever forward on someone's nude to another person. So we hear lots of stories about nudes that get shared and reach a broader audience because a group of friends has, you know, an individual has received a nude from someone and then passed it on or just showed their friends. And that to teens is the ultimate violation of consent and respect and really, really problematic. So we, we could talk about this chapter for hours, but you really get into the complexities of the inner life of the teen, especially girls. And everything that you talked about is what I have seen in my office. So this stuff is very, very real. I agree, especially with the tweens. And often we think our tweens aren't in that position, but they are. Just creating a space for you, mom and daughter, to have those conversations. She's not a terrible kid if she gets uh, sexed. It just happens a lot. And you all go into the statistics of that. So giving your daughter a space to talk about all the ways she feels pulled is so, so important. So, okay, so we have to wind this up. So Emily and Carrie, can you give one piece of advice to the moms listening? 
so many are on our minds. I think we we really hope that everyone who reads the book will be motivated to take some of the questions we suggest and start different kinds of conversations. A very concrete piece of advice that we have taken very seriously ourselves is this idea of modeling over magic. There is no magic wand that will undo the impact of the tech behaviors and habits that we model day in and day out for our kids. They see us on our phones. They feel our disrupted, distracted attention. We model this idea that what's on the screen is more important than the person in front of you. And one of the most simple and meaningful things that we can do to help our kids move toward better tech habits is really starting by taking a careful look at our own tech habits and what we are modeling for our kids. I agree. Okay. And I'll leave us with a really important thing that we've learned. And that's the power of a small, but really meaningful pivot and how we talk to our kids about tech. We often start with questions that place tech in the cause of all the problems position. Like, is Instagram making you depressed? Is TikTok pulling you into a toxic rabbit hole and wasting your time? But we've really from listening to the teens who've advised us, we've really learned about the importance of starting with what they're experiencing. Put the tech aside. So what are you experiencing? The good stuff and the hard stuff. Like what's hard for you right now? And then try to identify how tech is amplifying those experiences. In what ways is their tech use, like making things better, being a real source of support for them? In what areas is social media and their habits making things really worse? So we often think of social media like an amplifier, and we should always be asking, what is it amplifying for your kid? Great advice. So thank you so much and Emily and Carrie for your time. And I know you're busy because your book is about to be launched. So I really appreciate this. And I know the moms are going to get a lot out of this episode. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. All right. And so again, so where can they find the book and how can they contact y'all? The book is Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. You can find our book website at BehindTheirScreens.com. Carrie and I are both on Twitter also, so you can find us there. I'm at M-E-M underscore Weinstein, Carrie. And I'm at Carrie underscore James. Thanks so much. All right. Have a great day. This concludes this week's episode of Tower Your Parenting, Miles of Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.